Welcome to 1991 Movie Rewind, a podcast where we watch and review every movie released in 1991, from the all-time greatest classics to the critically panned and everything in between. We will rediscover forgotten fan favorites and uncover hidden gems as we explore the depths of direct-to-video. Join us in our celebration of the fun, unique, and diverse films of this highly underrated year. This week, we watched Impromptu. John, and thank you for joining us on 1991 Movie Rewind. Impromptu tells the story of George Sen, a famous French novelist played by Judy Davis, who refuses to conform to societal norms by dressing in pants and makes a habit of leaving broken hearts in her wake. When she encounters composer Frederick Chopin, played by Hugh Grant, George faces a challenge and seduction that she must conquer. Screenplay by Sarah Kernochan, directed by James Lapine, and released on April 12th. 1991. Have you seen Impromptu? No, I have not. Me either. I've seen the box, you know, video store thing. And it's, you know, we talked about this with all the warnings of the world. Like, I'm not huge into period pieces like this. Yeah. So it didn't really appeal to me, especially if it didn't have, you know, the prestige of like the Oscars behind it. Then I wasn't really going to pick that over some other classic that I hadn't seen from the 40s or 50s or something like that. Yeah. Um, so with that in mind, I honestly kind of want to start by trying to compare it a little bit to All the Mornings of the World because it is another movie that takes place in France about a composer. I mean, this, is 200, <laughs> this is 200 years later. Yeah, we but... flash forward 200 years. <laughs> but it's about composers, yeah. And so, and it's... This is not fanfic, though. This is kind of their lives. Yeah, it's it seems loose. to be more rooted in reality. There's more documentation of yeah things. I from mean, that it's time. not exact because I was trying to go back and forth and find out. Okay, who is this person? I mean, I know who Chopin is and George Sand. I I know them, mm. but the other people that came well friends list i knew too but i the was like who's, who's yeah, yeah george's friend friend yeah yeah the other people i was like are these people real or are they made up but they're all real they're all real that yeah. lived in the 1800s france and, and so some of the timeline stuff might have yeah. been different like you know yeah. son might have met with chopin before going to the house party at the duchess's house Right, mm-hmm. like they might have had some interactions before that. I didn't really dive too much into that, but so some of that might have been fictionalized, and they didn't go through what happened after they got together. So much in this movie, it sort of ended on the high note. Yeah, which I I know I don't think they ended on a high note in real life. So yeah, um, so yeah, you got that comparison for for all the mornings of the world. Um, in in that sense, I mean, the music in this is not the focus, the way it was in All the Mornings. Yeah, like Chopin's music is is there, pretty much all throughout. But it's it feels a lot more like just background noise, rather than anything central to the movie. Like 
there's a lot of times when you know there's a track that's playing and and George is um, is talking to someone else and then stops her conversation and then just starts listening and then you realize oh that's not just a piece of music that they're playing mm-hmm. in the background that's supposed to be happening in real time you know it's diegetic to the scene and it, you know it just my mind glosses over it. I don't know if you have the same... You have a better ear for music than I do. Um, I tend to recognize it at the time sometimes, but it doesn't, like, stick with me. So, I, I don't know. What did you think of, like... The music? Yeah, was it noticeable to you? Did it, it impact you at all? It, when they focused on it, there are times where, you know, they show Hugh Grant, who is Chopin, playing a piano alone in a room. That... Yeah, because it, it, it kind of, a lot of the times it's, you know, it's George Sand who, a.k.a. Aurora, I mean, she has a longer name. Yeah. She was like a baroness. She, she She's a writer. Aurora, yeah. She takes the pen name George Sand because, you know, women couldn't be writers, basically. But, I mean, everyone knew who she was. Yeah. They knew that she was a she- Mm-hmm. And she was a very well-known writer. But anyways, like, the parts where, like, Chopin is playing in a room and, like, kind of no- near the beginning where, you know, she kind of hears it out of a window or something. She kind of stops and she, like, leans up against a wall and is closing her eyes. I mean, those are the part. I guess it's making you feel the music, too. That's when I felt the music is when she felt it, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. It just didn't have that impact for me. And I don't know if it's just because it's been... I don't know if it's just because it's like a piece of classical music that's just sort of in the ether, Uh right? Or if it's just that these are not the most well-known Chopin 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 pieces pieces that I... I mean, maybe they're more well-known than I... I mean, I'm not very cultured, right? (laughs) When it comes to... (laughs) Yeah, when it comes to like classical music, I'm definitely not cultured. Um... But, like, nothing really stuck in my head or, or kind of pulled me in, um, which I guess is, you know, kind of a good thing and a bad thing. It's bad because it means that it wasn't impactful, but it's good in that I was able to focus on the story and not get, you know, sidetracked by just listening to the music and, you know, thinking, oh, well, shut up, people, I'm trying to listen to this. Yeah. I mean, the... I don't know the name. I know... Uh, I checked the soundtrack, and one of the first tracks is called Impromptu Number 1 in A-flat minor. So mm. that's kind of, you know, how I got the name. Yeah, but, Impromptu is like a, a, a But I just don't know which piece. Right? Yeah, I don't know which piece. Maybe it was the first piece that she heard, and that's what she fell in love with, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. And also a lot of times when he's talking to her... Or, you know, when he's playing music, it's not necessarily a finished piece. It's something yeah. that he's been trying to compose and work on. And so maybe that's part of it, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, overall, I mean, it wasn't super effective for me. The other thing that's working against this compared to All the Warnings of the World is that it's not anywhere close to being as painterly. 
Oh, no. I mean, there is a painter in this. <laughs> there is a painter in this. And it is a real painter, Delacro- Delacroix. Yeah, yeah, I think I said Delacroix. Friends List before. But yeah, that's, yeah, Friends that's, List is the, the other, other composer. composer. Yeah. Delacroix is the painter. Like that, said, they're I'm all not, friends. I'm not cultured. <laughs> they're um, all, you know, people in the arts that all hang out with each other. It's like writers, you got to painters and composers they all hang out in the same circles and they're all friends yeah that's what this is yeah it's like the rat pack but or, or yeah, the 18, brat pack or whatever 1800 you know. style yes exactly but yeah so even though there's a painter in the crew in terms of like the filmmaking and the camera work it's extremely flat it's like lifeless there's like no shadows Sure, there's a couple pretty locations as an exterior, but a lot of stuff takes place indoors with very basic sets. So that kind of pulled me out of it too. Mm. Is, you know, I was sort of hoping for a little bit more interest there, but it, you know, it it felt sort of like you know, like a. I think this maybe aired as like a PBS masterpiece type of a thing, but it had like a TV vibe. Okay, I mean, I could see this on PBS. I'm sure it was theatrically released first and then maybe came to Masterpiece later um, because it did have some box office. But um, yeah, it just it wasn't nearly as dynamic of a filmmaking experience. Um, so it has a couple things going against it. Um, but it obviously had a lot more story than All the Mornings of the World. Yeah. Um, so compared to that, there's a lot of exposition. There's a lot of characters. In fact, at the very beginning, there seems to be, you know, nonstop character introductions. Yeah. And that was a little bit tough for me to keep track of for the immediate future. And then, you know, everything sort of fell into place, but you get introduced to a lot of people in the start of this thing. You get the, the, who's it? The, the Duke and the Duchess. The no, one that throw the, the party? No, the, they come later. Um, what's what's her title? Uh, Brenda Peters a, is titled Countess. She's a countess. Countess. Uh, com- countess. Countess yeah. Marie de Galt, uh, and then Franz List, her lover, who she cannot marry because she is being refused a divorce from the count. I read. So I mean, I think in the movie that's what it looks like, but I was reading about. I was trying to read up on each of these people's lives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, is this, like, what's going on? So, the Comtesse, she was in a marriage of convenience. So, her husband allowed her to just do whatever with Do whoever. whatever she wants with whoever she wants. Mm-hmm. And same for him, I guess. And they oh, just. Oh, he was married too? Yeah. Okay. They they stayed married. They never got a divorce because you know that just wasn't the thing back then. They just got married, you know, out of convenience. But her lover for a really long time was Franz Liszt. I mean, she had three kids. This is where I was looking things up because every time they show her, she has a baby in her arms. Yeah. Yeah, and they jump forward in time a couple points. Yeah, and I was like, how many kids time. does she have? And I'm like, is that the same baby? But no. Yeah. That's what she had three kids with Franz List, and then she had the prior to that with her husband. 
she had two kids. So we're introduced to them. They're supposed to be, yeah. the, you know, like the best friends of, yeah. of George. Um, and the Countess wants to, I don't know, basically just be Franz's muse. Like that's her whole yeah. purpose in life like, is to I do that. I think the point was to, yeah, get, like how, okay, we're going to fast forward to the end. Mm-hmm. She wanted... It sound. I mean, in the movie, I don't know in real life. It's. It seemed as if she always wanted Franz to name a piece after her. Yes. And, and as like a joke, Chopin names a piece for her. Yeah. As like a yeah, it's sort of like a dig. Yeah, it was a dig at her, not like as a you were my muse. It was just. Yeah. Because of what happened. Yeah, because of the crappy and, stuff you did to try to. Yeah. To sabotage, sabotage this pairing, I guess. Yep. Um, and then List just wants to be famous, I think. He just wants yeah, to make just, money and yeah. be famous. And he feels creatively impotent by her because she has a child and the child is crying and it's distracting him. So oh, he tries yeah. to run away to various different tours and then comes back and each time she has more kids and it's like she, a well, vicious I cycle mean, of unhappiness. It's just, them. yeah, it just seems, you know, they just have a passionate love for each other, love-hate relationship. Yeah, something like that. Like he gets her pregnant, he's sick of her, she has the baby, comes back, sick of her and the baby, but yet they make another baby. Mm-hmm. And then the cycle happens all over again. Yeah. Yep. So that that's their relationship. We that's introduced a, them very yeah. early on. Um, we're introduced to uh, Eugene Delacroix. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, he's he's the the painter. Not much happens with him at the beginning, honestly. And you also get introduced to the um, the editor because George goes to meet the with the editor, uh, Blows, who's in. Hudson Hawk in 1991. We'll talk about him more then, I guess. Um, and Belows is in a meeting with George's ex-boyfriend at the time, which we didn't know was the ex-boyfriend. Uh, or I didn't. Uh, Alfred de Musset, played by Mandy Patinkin. Um, and that's sort of where we get our first little glimpse of the comedy side of things. Because right. this is meant to be a romantic, a comedy. romantic comedy of some sort. Um, and so when George goes into the publishing office, whatever it is, like, yeah, whoever it is, like announces, Hey, George is coming. And like all of the people who are on the floor just kind of like perk up and sort of like, yeah. Cause she's at this point, just a really well-known respected writer. Yeah. So it's like a respect and a fear type of a reaction right. that they well, all get. The way she, yeah. The way she carries herself too is right. just very... Um, and then when she gets into, yeah. uh, gets closer to Belosa's office, um, Alfred is there and he, He's like, his initial know. reaction is to jump out the window because that's the only way out of the place. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was semi-humorous and he ends up hiding in the cabinets just to avoid, uh, being near her at the time. So that's, you know, that's the level of humor that you get. And it doesn't really right. get any better 
than that in terms uh, of like i mean he you know, was probably to me the best out of the whole movie oh best character yeah yes. best character yes um but i mean yeah in terms of like comedy you're not gonna even i mean the horse stuff was funny yeah yeah, when he tries to share an apple with the horse when he's drunk. Yeah, but then he he busts into in. George Sand's room with the horse, and yes. then the horse poops like on her work. Yes, pretty much. So, so that's funny. Yeah, so you got the scatological <laughs> humor in the highbrow movie, and that's the best part. <laughs> so take that as as you will. In all honesty, I mean this is basically a it's an art house movie. Like okay, all yeah. the mornings of the world that was meant to be. You know, that's an art like house Oscar movie. Like, Oscar-worthy. And, like, you knew going in, like, this is who it's supposed to appeal to. Mm-hmm. If It's not meant for the everyman, right? You know, if you like this type of movie, then you'll probably like that. This, I think, was trying to have some sort of crossover appeal with the comedic side of things. Right. But it's just so incredibly basic um, that it makes the whole experience worse. I think the only people who could possibly find this funny are the, you know... I don't know how to explain it. It's like the art house crowd who just, they just don't know humor. You know what I mean? Like they don't have much experience with comedy or they find everything funny. Yeah. I mean, I was reading reviews on this, even like current reviews and people really liked this movie. I mean, there's. And say it's one of their favorite romantic comedies. And I don't get it. Like there's nothing that's funny about it. Like most of the, quasi jokes is like i don't know okay another character that gets introduced is the tutor uh mm-hmm. malfeel malfeel yeah which is another another ex lover recent so, ex lover yes. um and so he's like he wants to get in to deliver breakfast to George in bed. Right. That's... And she's locked the door because she doesn't want to have anything to do with him anymore. And she's not good at confrontations. She's ghosting him, basically. Yeah, ghosting even though he lives in the house because he's tutoring their kids. Yeah. Um, and so he's like knocking on the door or whatever. And then he like throws the fucking food at like... the door. Like that's supposed to be comedy, I think. But it's just fucking sad. You know what I mean? Like I, because he's pining for her, and she's obviously not returning. That and also it's just like toxic asshole behavior. Yeah, and like that's not funny. And throughout the entire movie, yeah, throughout the entire movie, he's like challenging people to duels, and even at the end, like he's angrily banging at the door, which is probably supposed to be like a callback joke. But it's just like, here's this dude who would kill. (laughs) I don't know. It's just not funny to me. I don't know. I that the whole duel thing. I don't. I guess it was a thing. I don't know if it was really a thing at the time. Still, I mean, he does the "I challenge you to a duel." Slaps a person in the face. Yes, they do the duel, yes. but they only okay. They show two duels in this movie, and they both kind of fail. Yes, comedically, supposedly, and that's where, like, supposed to be the funny. doctor gets shot. Yeah. Oh, ho, ho, how funny that, you know, this guy stumbled and fell because he was drunk and someone else got shot. Mm-hmm. How funny. Or how funny that, you know, Malfield got shot by George in the second duel. Right. Because uh, uh, Chopin fainted and, and George ran and picked up the gun and shot Malfield in the arm. 
And George won't let him get treated by the doctor because the boyfriend fainted. He needs to be handled first. Like, that's... It's not funny. Yeah. Like, I understand why they're trying to make... Like, but, I don't know. It's... It's not even lowbrow humor. It's just uncreative humor. It's the most basic situations you can possibly think of. With no real jokes, it's just situationally funny, but it's not funny as a situation to me. Anyway. Life Stinks was funnier. Right? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Life I mean, that's a comedy, yeah. That's like a legitimate comedy, mm-hmm. and yes, it fails a lot of the time, but at least it tries for certain things. And you know when it's not trying. This tries a lot, and I can't always tell if it's actually a legitimate try at humor that failed, or if it's just a different plot progression point. There's, it's tough to tell, because they're the same. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, it, we can just get to how Chopin yeah, there's and a lot of George like, meet. Yeah, because there's a lot of, like, missed opportunities where she just barely misses seeing him. She hears him. Hears him, She falls in love him. with his music. Because she keeps on getting, like, pulled away, and he just leaves as soon as he's able to, Yeah, you know, she wants to say hi, or pretty much say, hey, I love you because I love your music. And they do end up actually meeting, like, at a friend's function like it's this one duchess's house for like a weekend or a week or yeah it's, it's not summer? even a friend though that's the thing so it's, it's it was a, like an invitation to all from the duchess to all of these art folk yeah so it's this to duchess. stay at her place yes so this duchess played by emma thompson duchess daunton um she's basically a socialite who wants to be a cool kid and she recognizes that all these art kids are the coolest of the cool yeah and she has the money and the resources to draw them into her house and force them to be friends with her that's basically what the weekend or whatever it is it's, it it's seemed... like a fortnight right they said it was a fortnight okay because so it seemed like they're like two week excursion yeah where, yeah and they mostly agree because mm-hmm. hey it's free food yeah you don't have to pay bills for two like weeks that. yeah so let's do this and okay. Then they immediately try to I avoid mean, her. Right. Yeah, they go off and do their own thing. Because there is a part where one day it's raining. So usually, like every day, they're doing something like going out, like shooting ducks or something. <laughs> yeah, having picnics and what yeah. else? Yeah, I mean, it starts to rain close to when they're supposed to leave, I think. And so they're kind of trapped there for a few yeah. days. And so that's when they put on this play about the rain that actually ends up being a scathing, you know kind of like a rebuke of of the duchess and her behavior yeah the duchess is basically like yeah like a fangirl or someone who's you know play for my amusement yeah she's like i invited you guys here now write a play and play a song and paint for me because these are the things that you do yeah that that's sort of the thing but yeah the whole time she has sort of like this fangirl type of behavior it's like oh yay like she's very frantic and happy and whatnot it's really a fun performance by emma thompson she's probably the second best character (laughs) next to mandy patinkin so yeah so that's that's when chopin and and her first actually meet and, and lay eyes on each other which is i mean like we're almost halfway through the movie before this happens 
yeah, this was a, a slow build-up. This it's whole, way too slow. The their I don't know their courtship or whatever is a very slow build-up, and she pretty much is like, "I love you immediately." Yes. I love you because I love your music is basically yes. what it comes down to. It's and like, he is I like just need to be around this music. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's like something like they try to pull, you know, like this gender reversal type of a situation on it because, okay. We already talked like George son. She doesn't dress conventionally. She basically, I'd say like the most like, um, she's like a Diane Keaton. Like if we look yeah. at like something of a modern similarity or like a Fran Leowitz type of a get up like yeah it's, she wears it's that pants even though women were not supposed to wear pants yeah like a pants and a jacket she has the frizzy hair lack of makeup she's not made up to be you know especially yeah. pretty uh um, she rarely wears dresses but every once in a while she would wear a dress to around Chopin to be like hey I'm a pretty woman yeah to elicit well. these responses and whatever yeah to get some sort of yeah reaction from him yeah and then um the, her friend uh the Countess Marie Bernadette Peters character she's like trying to sort of help her get him and basically say look Chopin's basically like a woman you're basically like a man treat it that way that's yeah. sort of what she says. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, be super aggressive, you know, like, you, you know, do all the things that a man would do to woo a woman, do that to him. Um, and then, yeah, eventually he'll... He'll fall for love it. ...love you, but yeah. he is not responding to any of this. No. And he so, is just repulsed by her for the majority of this movie. Yes, and what doesn't help are a couple different things. One is that Bernadette Peters is actually working against her. She's trying to actually get Chopin for herself as well. Yeah. And two, you have Alfred, Matthew Patankin, and you have Malfi, played by uh, Georges Coraface, who are also at the party. Yeah, one all was of invited, her exes one was not. They show are up and, at and, the party. And cause havoc and disruption and you know, confusion and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, madcap polarity ensues. Right. It's like, oh, this person wants this person, but this person wants this person. Mm -hmm. And it's just, uh, like I said, it's the most basic crap. So that that's where like the first duel comes into play, basically, is like Malfi is there to uh, protect her honor and make sure that no other man comes close to her because he wants her all for her for himself um and so he challenges alfred to a duel alfred still kind of wants george as well i guess or at least does when he thinks he's going to die um and so you have like this quadrangle pen. Yeah. <laughs> i don't know parallelogram of romance going on there and you get through this long sequence and they go through this play where it's very obvious that they're just making fun of the Duchess and Chopin is the only one who doesn't want to take part in it because he didn't have any, you know, role in writing it. And then once he, you know, hears the play, he's supposed to accompany it with music. Once yeah. he hears what's going on, he's like, I refuse to take part in this bashing of our gracious hosts. And then, you know, everyone goes on their separate ways 
And so, like, we're more than halfway through the movie, and guess who are not together and don't even like each other at this point? Right? George yeah, and Chopin. The, yeah. That was 45 minutes in, and I'm like, this is an hour and a half movie. Uh, like, when are they going to get together? Yeah, are they but, just not going to? I honestly thought, like, at the end of the Like, Dutch, are they not going to get together? I thought the Duke and Duchess party was basically going to be, like, the end of the movie because it felt so long. Yeah. And then they wedge in this part with the kids. All right, so George has two kids, and the Duke and the Duchess have one kid that they, like, yes. like tie up and, like, bully yeah, to they, start. And then... George's children torture the host child. Like, I don't even At know. At least to start, until yeah, they get yeah. explosives until, involved. Until, yeah, until the child's like, hey, I know where my dad's um, gunpowder gun powder and whatever is. Like, let's go play with that. Yeah. And none of the adults give a shit that these kids are you know doing they can do whatever they want yeah of course yeah so they like blow up a frog um and then they put gunpowder into uh wood that will be put into the fire which disrupts the play but other than that i mean there's no point in having all these sidebars with the kids the kids don't even need to be in the stupid movie at all for my purpose like unless to show that scene with the play scene because the kids were in that play yeah i guess that's a long way to go i know (laughs) i mean they could have just appeared and be like oh there's children all of a sudden right but i don't know worked the play to not have them there i don't know but there's just a lot of like empty wasted space is my point with that they were stuck by the rain they put on the play they leave and then Time passes. No idea how much time passes. But, like, at this point, like, I'm not rooting for George. Like, I don't care what happens with her. Like, I'm not her, I'm not on her side, necessarily. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like, just leave this poor guy alone. Because he, right. all he wants to do is make music, and that's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. The moral of the story is, like, no one takes a freaking hint in France. Like, Malfi... Yeah, no way. Yeah, the way that she is to Chopin is how Melfiel is to her. Yeah. Uh, And same thing with Marie. Like, leave Chopin alone as well. Yeah, no one can leave this man alone, and he just wants to play his music. No one can leave anyone alone. They should all be leaving each other alone. Is leave each other alone so they can just go do their prospect- their prospective work. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> the only one that leaves someone alone properly is Eugene Delacroix, who oh. like, basically, like, you know, has a, a quick fling, like, With throws himself on the Duchess, Emma Thompson. They have, like, a one-night stand, and then, like, you know, that's it. They're, they're separate. He's yeah, just, that know. was, yeah, a mutual thing. Yeah. So there's that. Um, but yeah, Eugene really doesn't have much of a point in this story either. Like, I understand he's sort of like a... He's just he's like... He's like a friend who gives yeah. guidance and he also helps, like, unravel the mystery of why Chopin didn't fall for George's advances at the Duchess's house, which is basically... George wrote this love letter, but Marie took her signature off and wrote her own name so that Chopin thought that Marie wrote it instead of George. 
mm-hmm. and that was also part of the the issue and then yeah like eugene helps uncover that that's what happened basically and, yes yeah, you know she's trying to sabotage this get together yeah, I mean, years pass. I think it's like every couple of years because they show the contest with a new baby. And I'm assuming it's at least a couple of years. Yeah, and she always has like bigger bags under her eyes and she's looking like sicklier and sicklier as time goes on because yeah. she's just worn down from these kids. And, I mean, she has a nanny and this mm-hmm. poor nanny is doing all the things. The only thing that the contest is doing is breastfeeding basically yep and the nanny does everything else but she's tired yeah she's tired and, and she wants friends list too. to make more music and name them after her that's yeah her. so she doesn't leave him alone no one leaves anyone alone no and then no one's happy in this right what a comedy I mean, the the love happens, or this pairing or get-together happens at the very end, Basically. where she, George San Aurora, because she announces herself at Chopin's house as Aurora, like Chopin's butler or whoever was like, Madame Aurora is here. And, yeah, like the Baroness of Yeah, whatever. the Baron. yeah. yeah. And she is that but she just never uses that yeah. title and her, he her was life. like who is that and she enters and she's like that's my real name mm-hmm. she confesses about this letter and then he, that's where he kind of softens a little bit but he doesn't fully believe her yeah that, he doesn't really believe her but the the, he's starting to soften because i think maybe he fell in love with her words she fell in love with his music they fell in love with each other's work yes this is what's happening. That's is... the idea. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It just doesn't Because he really liked he really liked that letter he thought that the contest wrote. But not enough to get with the contest. Yeah, not enough. Good. He just he was moved by it. Mm-hmm. But when she said, you know, I wrote that letter, he's kind of like, no, blah blah blah. And then two year another two years go by, yeah, basically. Well, before that though, yeah. I mean, part of the reason why he doesn't believe her is he thinks that there's a bet that she made. Oh, that because the Comtesse told him yes. that we like we made a bet that, you know That George would seduce you next. Yeah. And so there's money on the line if you get with her. And, you, and, and that's not true. And the, yeah, it's not She's true. She's just at making all. this stuff up. Yep. Yeah, they learn about the bet, or George learns about the bet, and um, and then yeah. I don't know. Two years go by. Yeah, it's a long. <laughs> it's just thing. a long like courtship. It's like what six years? She's still pining for him, and eventually uh, he comes round. I don't even know what happened anymore. <laughs> like she's and at some point, Malfi is there and challenges him to a duel, and then yeah. too. It's just he's. I think he, uh, Chopin finally was like, uh, like he finally figured out on his own accord that George Sand was telling the truth all along. Yeah, and they meet up again. They like have this very you know this tension between each other they finally kiss and then they're all of a sudden together yeah 
just not duel. all the way because Chopin's health or whatever. He's like, I, I'm afraid to get yeah. close to anybody because I may die because my right. is Chopin, poor. before all of this, I, I was looking this up as well, but I don't know how old he was. I mean, he died rather young. Yeah, what like, was it that he had? It was like basically had, like asthma it, and tuberculosis. Yeah, tu- it was, yeah, tu- basically like a tuberculosis. Something with his lungs. And he was previously engaged, but the father or family of the woman he was engaged to would not allow it because he was going to die soon. Oh, he's too much of a health risk. Yeah. And it wasn't worth wasting the So prime he of could her never life. really marry. And he tells George this, and she's like, let's live your life out to the best that it could be. Yeah, it's like, I don't have to be with you physically, I just want to be with you artistically, basically. It's the gist of it. Yeah, he died. We should just be together. We don't have to be together. How old, I think? He was like in his 20s at this point, because he died, because this is in the 1830s, I believe. Just from looking at timelines of people's births and deaths and whatever, he died in 1849 and he was 39. Okay. So he did die young. Yeah. And they were not together when from, he died either. No. Um, but they don't end on that. For, okay. So they take like, <laughs> they take, it's like, I don't know, three fourths of the way of the movie when they finally get together. They show a montage of being in love. Basically, like, right before the end credits, practically. Yeah, yeah. This is is where I was like, oh, finally. I wanted to, from the time they got together to the end of the movie, I was like, things are happening. But, like, I don't know, the montage wasn't interesting at all. They could have just showed that as the whole movie. Just them being in love. There are other movies that cover that. I know that for a fact. Oh, okay. Um, or, or at least <laughs> this like this was leading or, up to or at least it, like, like a long... basically where this movie leaves off, they go through like this, and then the they deterioration go... of the relationship yeah, with yeah. like her and, and George's uh, George's daughter and everything, mm-hmm. and all the stuff that happened with that at some point in life that they do not cover here because they just carriage off I mean, into the sunset. Yeah, basically. they carriage off and go on a trip together to Mallorca. They're going to Spain. But I mean, you know, by the time like the montage and stuff happens, like I don't care. I don't even want them to be together anymore. Like I don't care. I it doesn't the matter. The part that they got when they got together and then till the end, I was like finally. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if the, I guess it was like, these meant are, to be. I don't know. Like everyone's an asshole. I don't care about them. Like I don't want them to win. I don't know. Life was different in 18 30s, yeah. French society. Probably not too different, I guess, overall. And then there's a part with George's mother, too, that also took up more time. Um, <laughs> so, I don't know. Like, she's a good actress. The, the mother, Anna Massey, played the, the, the mother, is a, is a good actress, but I don't know. I was just bored with it. I didn't need a new character at that point. What do you think about the accent that Hugh Grant used? By the way, we haven't talked about Okay, so... He's like the only one that uses an accent, right? So this is in France. But Chopin... all talking in English-British accents. Yes. Except for Chopin. Chopin is Polish. Yes. And I was like, is he trying to do a Polish accent? But it kind of sounds like he's trying to do like an... 
okay, he's English in real, like Hugh yes. Grant is English, yes. but he's trying, it, it sounded as if he was doing like an even more funnier version of an English accent, but also trying to be French. Yeah, it sounded like he was trying to do a French accent to me. Or the, just like some weird goofy, I don't know, it was very off-putting. Yeah, that and was, And he was like yeah. the only one doing that. Right, because everyone had English accents. Including, I mean, Franz, Franz, Franz Liszt, he is... He's not French fully. No, right? he's Hungarian, Yeah, he's but, Hungarian, but he didn't really have... I mean, he had a... I guess he did have a little bit of a different accent, didn't he? Right. Now I think about it. I mean, Delacroix is French, but he had, he didn't really... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Judy Davis, she is... I mean, she had the British accent, and George Sand is French. Yes. You know, all, the, all the French people had British accents. All the non-French had French accents, I guess, or something close to it. <laughs> yeah. Some unidentifiable thing. Another weird aspect of things. So through cast and crew stuff that we haven't talked about so far, because we didn't talk about too many of them. Um, a lot of these actors are going to be in other 1991 movies, so we don't have to go too deep into them. Except um, for Hugh Grant, so if you... Yeah, yeah. Um, well, actually, he is in one more. Oh, really? Movie. Uh, director James Lapine, Lapine, I don't know, he, um, he's mostly known for, like, he wrote musicals, uh, not the music part, but he won three Tonys for best book, which is basically, like, the written word parts of musicals, mm-hmm. which I didn't know was an actual separate category, because I'm not cultured, right? Um, but he wrote Into the Woods, just not the musical part. He wrote the storyline for story- Into the okay. Woods. Okay, yeah. I yeah I love Into the Woods and I can see I mean Bernadette Peters was in that so yeah you're gonna see a lot of like crossover between like Broadway and also Sondheim because James Lapine you know collaborated with Sondheim a lot so he he wrote he won the Tonys for Into the Woods a play called Passion uh, which had vitamin C in the uh, the video release version of that oh wow Uh, and falsettos Uh, he's also been nominated seven other times for Tonys. Um, the only other theatrical movie directing work that's I find worth mentioning is Life with Mikey, which is another like Michael J. Fox movie that didn't really go anywhere. Um, but this was his first feature. Um, and he's also married to the writer, Sarah Kernachan. Uh, Sarah has two Oscar wins. One is for best documentary feature in 1972, movie called Marjo, which is one that I've wanted to watch. I think I have a copy of it somewhere. And then she also won in 2002 for a documentary short called Thoth. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. T-H-O-T-H. So I'm assuming it's Thoth. About like a street performing clown in New York, I think. But she also has a Razzie. Mm. <laughs> she had, well, a nomination. Uh, because she wrote the screenplay for nine and a half weeks and that earned her a Razzie nomination. What? Yeah. Uh, she's a novelist and musician on top of also doing screen work and documentary work. Uh, she did the stories for Summersby and What Lies Beneath. Um, so, yeah. Very diverse career. Um, Judy Davis, our, our lead, she has two Oscar nominations. One for A Passage to India and the other one's for Husbands and Wives, which came a year later. Uh, she has three Emmy wins, nine nominations. Uh, she has a BAFTA win for My Brilliant Career, which was back in 1979. 
Um, two Golden Globe wins. One was for One Against the Wind, which is a 1991 TV movie, which we do have on our list. And also Life with Judy Garland, where she played Judy Garland. And we'll see her again next week when we cover Barton Fink. And she's in four more 1991 movies I have not mentioned beyond that. So it's like Barton Fink, this one, Naked Lunch, One Against the Wind, and then three others. She's in a ton of 1991 stuff. Mm-hmm. Hugh Grant, Emmy nominated for A Very English Scandal. Um, he's in the 1991 movie Our Sons. He was in... Uh, before this layer of the white worm obviously he was in other stuff like four weddings and a funeral which is like his big breakout role he won the bafta and the golden globe for that he was also nominated at the mtv movie awards for breakthrough performance for that um but you probably know him from american dreams (laughs) (laughs) not music and lyrics (laughs) two weeks notice nine months right mickey blue eyes um yeah he's He's had a career. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mandy Patinkin, we all know him. We'll talk about him more later. He's in the the nineteen ninety movie The Doctor, and also in a movie called True Colors. Right now, you just need to know that he was the voice of Papa Smurf in the Lost Village movie. Uh, Bernadette Peters, I don't think is in any other nineteen ninety one movies. She's in Into the Woods, right? Yeah. Um, Mozart in the Jungle, she was on that for TV stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. She was in The Jerk, obviously, a silent movie. Um, she has a, a lot of, like, hand and comedy stuff, so she was an Emmy-nominated actress for Ally McBeal, and also The Muppet Show, uh, her guest appearance on, on that back in the day. Uh, Pennies for Heaven earned her a Golden Globe. She was the Hasty Pudding Woman of the Year back in 1987, and she also has... Uh, <laughs> two nominations for the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards. Mm-hmm. So like a precursor yeah. to the Razzies for worst on-screen couple. Two years uh, she had for The Jerk with Steve Martin. Evidently they didn't like her pairing. And then also the movie Heart Beeps with Andy Kaufman. She was nominated for worst on-screen couple with him. I mean, Emma Thompson's in Dead Again as well. But uh, yeah, you all know Emma Thompson. Um I will say that she, Emma Thompson, was nominated for a Spirit Independent Award, Independent Spirit Award for this movie, Best Supporting okay. Female. Uh, but she lost to Diane Ladd for Rambling Rose. And the other award to mention for this one is, again, Independent Spirit Awards. Judy Davis won the Best Female Lead. Which, okay, I guess. All right. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I Didn't don't know. captivate me. But hey, and that's all that's worth mentioning. On to true crime and pop culture. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just have another, the the past few weeks is just like, let's find out what horrible things men do. (laughs) Back to Hugh Grant. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Talking about Hugh Grant. A very English scandal. Um, yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, it's the obvious thing that I was going to look up, but I also found other things that he was involved with. But I'm going to do all the things chronological order. Yes. So starting with what everyone knows, I suppose, on June 27th, 1995, Grant was arrested in 
L.A. in a police vice operation near Sunset Boulevard for receiving oral sex in a public place from Hollywood sex worker Divine Brown. Her real name is Estella Marie Thompson, and he paid her $60 for that. The reason why they stopped him or them was because Hugh Grant was constantly pressing his foot often on the emergency brake. Okay. So the lights were repeatedly like flashing. flashing. And so the cop was like, hey, what's going on over there? Yeah, someone in trouble. Yeah. Maybe. So yeah, that's his fault. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know. He pleaded no contest and was fined a thousand one thousand one hundred and eighty dollars placed on so like 1240 total so far mm-hmm. yep. okay <laughs> yes <laughs> he placed on two years probation and was ordered to complete an aids education program mm. the arrest occurred two weeks before the release of his first major studio film which was nine months which he was scheduled to promote on several American television shows, including The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. He was booked that same week. Mm-hmm. And I remember that episode. Did it, did that actually still happen, or was it after everything I think it was after down, everything went down. Yeah, Leno. everything went down. <laughs> yeah, that was sort of like a turning point in his career and like his redemption story, basically. Yeah, yeah. everything... So it... I don't know what happened to the time slot he was supposed to be on. Like, I couldn't find anything about it. But, yeah, he eventually went on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. And this is where Jay Leno asked him, what the hell were you thinking? Yeah. And all Grant answered with was, I think you know in life what's a good thing to do and what's a bad thing. And I did a bad thing. And there you have it. In so a year later in 1996, Grant won a, a damages like a substantial damages suit from this is all UK stuff that I was looking up from a News UK Limited with his lawyers from being called a quote highly defamatory article that was published in January of 95. So before he even got arrested in June. <laughs> of 95 this was going on the company's newspaper today magazine this uk publication which ceased publication the following november falsely claimed grant as being verbally abusive to a young extra with a foul mouth quote foul mouth tongue lashing on the set of the englishman who went up a hill but came down a mountain okay but that was dropped in april of 2007 he was arrested on allegations of assault made by a paparazzo grant made no official statement and did not comment the charges were dropped again by the company this paparazzo worked for the crown prosecution service on the grounds of insufficient evidence That same month, April 27th, 2007, he accepted undisclosed damages from a 
Associated Newspapers over claims made about his relationships with his former girlfriends in three separate tabloid articles that were published by the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday in February of 2007. His lawyer stated that all of the articles, allegations, and factual assertions are all false. Grant said in a written statement that he took the action because I was tired of the Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday papers publishing almost entirely fictional articles about my private life for their own financial gain. Mm -hmm. In April 2011... Grant published an article in a magazine. This is all British magazines, like tabloids and stuff. This British magazine called The New Statesman, and he titled this article The Bugger Bugged, about a conversation that he had with a former journalist and paparazzo by the name of Paul McMullen. Paul McMullen was a journalist for this publication called news of the world it kind of sounds like the inquirer yeah it's basically (laughs) that news of the world is now out of actually like news of the world became out of publication not too long after this i don't know if it's because of this but as of july 2011 it news of the world is out of publication i think it might have been I, I because sort of, of remem- this article i i sort of remember some of this stuff go ahead and continue on and all right jog some memories i mean okay in unguarded comments which were secretly taped by grant mcmullen alleged that editors at the daily mail and news of the world had ordered journalists to engage in illegal phone tapping and had done so with the full knowledge of senior british politicians mm-hmm. yeah yeah that became like a big thing i remember and yeah I don't know how many different organizations or, or publications went down because of that, but yeah, that was sort of like the second wave of backlash. I think, you know, that first little part that you talked about with Hugh Grant and like the assault, mm-hmm. I remember seeing and hearing a lot more stuff about how aggressive paparazzi were in the 90s. Well, like, yeah, because this then, is, that was very this is around even the time that's when like Princess Diana and Dodie, they died because they're so aggressive yeah and in the just, uk yes completely you know breaking laws in order to get whatever pictures and yes yeah just doing anything to get and then that seemed to sort of slow paid. down probably because of princess because diana of and, yeah. and any reforms that might have happened to the process but then other stuff like the wiretapping or you know just complete fabrications of stories started to happen instead and now yeah that's where hugh grant is sort of stepping into to voice his concerns there too so it all makes sense in my in my opinion like all the stuff and all the actions that he took in terms of like you know protecting his personal life i mean who knows what is real and what isn't right but Mm -hmm. you know if there's enough doubt then it makes sense to take action Um, and then we have some new music sort of top song of the U.S. was London Beats' I've Been Thinking About You. Okay. The top song in the U.K. was the Chesney Hawks song. So ah, that that was going that strong, had, the the one and only. That had some legs. Yeah. I think In the U.K. Well, because he's a U.K. artist. I think when, when Doc Hollywood released, that was after it. Because I yeah. remember like, it hit number one for another movie that we covered on yeah. the podcast. 
And then I was looking at the release dates, and Doc Hollywood came out after yeah. that movie. So, yeah. So they used this famous song. Yeah, they used, like, a current famous song for that movie. Mm. And the top five, or the top number one R&B song was Johnny Gill, Wrap My Body Tight. All right. <laughs> I don't fully remember it until I hear it again. But no, I, I yeah. We'll have the video hopefully up on the yeah, website. Yeah, so we can find it. And then TV-wise, we found an SNL episode. We watched it on Peacock. So the next day on April 13th, 1991, was the three, 303rd episode of SNL, hosted by Catherine O'Hara, and the musical guest was R.E.M. Mm -hmm. And apparently Carol King was sitting in with the SNL band. Oh, really? We didn't see that. No. Yeah, maybe she was shown, like, you know how when they do, like, the live show, they do, um, when... Like, those interludes like, in between. Yeah, and, like, the they buffers really from coming in and out of commercial, yeah. they'll show the band. Like, they don't show that on the streaming services. Yeah. So maybe she was shown in, in that, because they don't show the music performances at all. We didn't like, see either of the Like, not even the band, REM. really. Yeah. Yeah, just the opening song, of course. Um, yeah, Catherine O'Hara did not have any 1991 movies. So we will not see her again <laughs> in this, this podcast. This just after the whole... Home Alone. Home Alone thing, yeah. She was in between Home Alones. Um, but obviously, you know, just comedic powerhouse, too, with SCTV and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, the sketches that they showed, it, some of them were, you know, like an It's Pat. They didn't show a lot of sketches with Catherine O'Hara in them. She was in maybe two or three she, yeah she was in a couple i mean she did an opening number which is funny right like she yeah, it was kind of like, a, like an a improv. improv thing which had bob odenkirk in the audience pretending to be a normal guy right mm -hmm. saying <laughs> like, do you know me and he's like nope yeah. like are you do you work for snl no yeah no. are yeah. you an actor no yeah um because he was a writer at the time mm -hmm. um and that, yeah, it was like meant to be like an improv performance on the book, Presumed Innocent, which I don't know if it was in movie at that point yet or not, but yeah, I don't, but I yeah, know. it was, it was like a funny little faux improv musical number that they did. Um, but yeah, like half the sketches are cut out of these Peacock renditions. Like they're missing an episode. Sprockets was supposed to be in there, but we didn't see that. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple other sketches. One was like Randy Quaid cameo that was not in there. Um, yeah, apparently, um, like they did another sketch called "The Dancer," and the boxer Evander Holyfield was in it. Okay. And then there was another sketch called "In Conclusion Theater," yeah. where Randy Quaid was in that. So yeah. there was a lot of you there know was appearances a few things that were missing. And then also like the performances. By R.E.M., which we didn't see, they played Losing My Religion and Shiny Happy People, and then Katie Pearson from the B-52s performed with them on Shiny Happy People. Yeah, and that made me really confused about R.E.M. the difference between R.E.M. and, and the B-52s. B yeah. I thought they were the same band along, for a long time because I saw it, that live performance. Me too, because, I mean, well... Because I, I didn't mean, realize that there could be like guest performances in songs from Well, they did multiple bands. songs together for that album and that's when i was like so is, 
Well, I mean, watching like that video, the shiny happy people video, at, at like as like a ten year old, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, this is cool. I like these people. Yeah. And then you see them in other songs, but then when you see the B fifty twos, you're like, oh, it's REM, but no, it's not REM because the guy is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, his, yeah, Michael Stipe and, and Fred. I don't know Fred's last name from B fifty twos. I can't think of I it can't. right now. So. But, like, you know, in Shiny Happy People versus, like, Love Shack, they're both, like, French bouncing around, and they have, like, a very similar body type and right, look. Yeah. So, like, it, you know. Like, that's not the guy. Yeah, it's not the guy, but is it the guy? Like, mm-hmm. it's very tough to say. But it's the same girl, so yeah. it must be the same band, because. This is what goes on in 10-year-old, 10, 11-year-olds. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't really, I don't know when I differentiated the two. <laughs> it was way too late for me. It was like a long time after. I was like, oh, the B-52s was a whole other band? Right. Oh, and Shiny Happy People is a R.E.M. song. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And Rome is not an R.E.M. song? Okay. Mm-hmm. Got it. They were just, Yeah. So, <laughs> but anyway, okay episode overall. The weird, like the last gush they did was like the funeral where she yeah, comes it was in like with a wedding, wedding funeral, like, like a weird like performance art piece that was not like a sketch to me. <laughs> that did not yeah, it was play the, well. The it way how awkward. it went, even everyone that was in the audience was like, "What the hell's going on?" Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, maybe they were meant to look like that. Yeah. One good one with Alec Baldwin. We have one bad one with Delta Burke. This is sort of like meh in the middle, but kind of yeah. towards bad. I just wish I saw the musical performances. Yeah, I wish they would show everything, but we'll say that every time we come across an SNL episode. On to rankings and ratings we go. On your one to five star scale, where would you put impromptu? Uh, I'm, I'm going to give this a two. Okay, two out of five. Um, on my zero to four star scale, I I just did not like it. I don't know. I wanted to like. I thought I would like this a lot more than all the mornings in the world, and I didn't like at all. Um, I, I'm gonna say it's probably a half star. I don't see much that's redeeming about it. Something I forgot to mention. Like, okay, they talk about the impromptus at some point. Like Chopin says, in the you know to create like a good impromptu the audience must not be able to guess at all the careful calculations behind it mm. like it's supposed to seem like an improvised piece but it's carefully constructed and whatever it did not accomplish that goal right? mm. it was just i could see all of the stupid careful calculations and i was dreading every single one so i'm saying half star uh but every movie is worth watching once i guess would you watch it again no no I mean, I didn't hate this movie. I liked the last 20 minutes of this movie. I was checked out by the but time But no, happened. I wouldn't watch this again. No, there's far... This is... Okay, if, if I would have seen this back in the day, it would have reinforced my decision to not watch period pieces. This would be a no, because it's... I'm... Yeah. But I mean, like, if I were to go and watch something like Sense and Sensibility... Yeah. I'd probably enjoy that. So like, I'd rather watch something else. You know, let's, let's watch some other 1800s movie and not this again. Uh, but if you want to watch Impromptu, <laughs> as of this recording in June 2021, it's available on Tubi, Hoopla, Digital Rental, VHS, DVD. As always, check your local listings. 
You can listen to us on all of your major podcasting platforms. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. It really does help us out a lot. You can email us at 1991moviewrewind at gmail.com. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Letterboxd. Just search 1991 Movie Rewind or go to 1991moviewrewind.com for the full list of movies along with show notes and more. Next week, we'll join Judy Davis once again in the Coen Brothers' Barton Fink. That's available on digital rental, VHS, and DVD. We'll see you then. Thanks. Thanks.